This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. And this is our second episode looking at fandom. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go back and give it a listen. It started with Sailor Moon and I was hooked. I was obsessed. I was Sailor Moon for Halloween. I would watch it every day. I bought the VHS tapes. I had like a wall scroll poster. I would draw only Sailor Moon. Not very well, but I did it. The feeling was pure joy, especially growing up because I didn't really have friends in real life that had the same kind of nerdy hobbies I did. Being able to be essentially in a community that shares the same love for these shows or these characters was just a warm feeling of acceptance. Oh, that was really touching. And I must say that I was a big Sailor Moon fan back in the day. Where are you? I was. Oh, by the way, welcome to the studio again, Avery Miles. Hello. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. Of course. So who was that? (laughs) I was very touched, but also, who was that? Yeah, great question. So that was Yalda Mostajaran, and uh, among other things, she's a huge Sailor Moon fan and also a cosplayer. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So I know you, in our first episode about fandom, you kind of gave us a little entree into this world. So where are you taking us on this episode? We are going to look at the communities that fans build and what happens when that uh, enthusiasm can turn toxic. Mm, Okay, now I can say that I've never been a toxic Sailor Moon fan, although I did exhibit toxicity in my own personal way towards Sailor Moon herself because she was garbage (laughs) and Sailor Venus should have been the leader of the Scouts. If you know, you know. Raise your hand if you agree, everyone. (laughs) Thank you so much. Did you ever watch Sailor Moon? I didn't, know. Did you ever get into like... Any other kind of fandoms, like, outside of the obvious of Titanic? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was too busy drawing the ship. Um, (laughs) No, so I read a lot of romance novels Hmm. growing up. And, yeah, it's funny you ask because during the pandemic, a lot of people probably gave themselves challenges. And one of mine was to write a romance novel. Oh, wow. Of my own. Yeah. Okay. I joined a group. We meet almost every week to do these sprints where you write and then you come back together, you talk. And especially because romance can kind of, you know, it gets stigmatized. And Mm. so it's nice having that shared mutual sensibility of like, yeah, this is a thing we love and we're unashamed about it. Yeah, I can see that being important to boost morale and keep each other accountable, really. Mm -hmm. And because we set up our own group, we're also self-governed. And that idea of self-governance kind of reminds me of a lot of online community groups. But we'll get into that later in the episode. Got it, got it, got it. So last episode, we heard a lot about fanfic writing, but Yalda's into another part of fandom that's more in-person, and that's cosplay. Everyone was super, super kind and super sweet, and it was just such a lovely energy where people wanted to share like their love of the show and their love of cosplay in general, and I think that is what set me off to start consistently cosplaying. 
So Sailor Moon is about this 14-year-old girl named Yusagi who discovers that she is the Moon Guardian and later, spoiler alert, Moon Princess from past life. And a talking cat named Luna gives her essentially her powers to fight evil and all the evil forces trying to take over our universe. It was very corny and very fun. And I am now a professional video editor, probably because I started making AMVs and teaching myself how to video edit. So thanks, Sailor Moon. <laughs> and it wasn't just a jumping off point for her career. In 2016, Yalda went to New York Comic Con on a work trip. And she thought, you know, why don't I cosplay? That'll be fun because I'm not going to be working the whole time. And Stranger Things had just came out. And so I wanted to cosplay Winona Ryder's character, Joyce Byers. But I attached this cardboard wall on my back. To She has this famous scene where she's like yelling at the lights and writing the alphabet. And she's like, well, so I was like, OK, let me make that. So I made it in a week. And it's that kind of just unbridled love fest of everyone giving each other their props, everyone just wanting to share information of how they made it, especially growing up because I didn't really have friends in real life that had the same kind of nerdy hobbies I did. Being able to be essentially in a community that shares the same love for these shows or these characters was just a warm feeling of acceptance. Since then, Yalda's made so many costumes, including a mid-transformation Sailor Moon, where half her body is this classic sailor school uniform, and the other half is a pink moon princess outfit. It's a hobby that turns people into pro-level crafters. When Yalda was making a lot of her costumes, she lived in a New York City apartment and had to go outside onto her balcony in order to spray paint some of the decorations. I have gotten into 3D printing, 3D modeling, woodwork, spray painting, power drilling. Just, I bought so many tools solely for this <laughs> space. Oh, and by the way, if you want to see pictures of Yalda's costumes, we'll link to her Instagram in our show notes. But besides the power tools and the community love, there's also a certain level of competition. I've seen examples of that in terms of some of the cosplay where there is a hierarchy of professionalism almost of who is good, who looks the most like the person on screen that they're trying to look like. That's associate professor Rebecca Williams again. We heard from her in our last episode. And again, some fans feeling a bit left out of that because they can't afford to buy very expensive outfits or they can't afford to buy very expensive accessories and go to these big events. And again, this tends to be, I think, certain fans who are, again, better off financially will traditionally be, again, white, usually very um, kind of skinny, sort of thinner um, fans. So there's sometimes discussions as well about kind of uh, body shaming and the kind of exclusion of fans who maybe are um, from different ethnic backgrounds um, who maybe don't conform to that very stereotypical view of what cosplay should look like. So for all of the acceptance that Yalda has experienced doing cosplay, there's also this element of exclusivity based on someone's finances and body type and even race. And during the pandemic, in some ways, cosplay became more accessible with conventions canceled and most interactions taking place online. But it also introduced new pressures. 
because of COVID and everyone being inside, social media started playing a lot bigger of a role. And the positive of that is that it really provided accessibility. I think, you know, it showed, you know, anyone can cosplay and that's the way it should be. If you, whether you buy your costume or make your costume, you want to cosplay, cosplay, go for it. Whether you have a wig or you use your natural hair, go for it. Have fun. That is the point of cosplay. So that's a positive. But then the negative side of that is it seemed to put a lot more pressure onto monetizing cosplay. So it, it has this feeling of the accessibility is great, but it also kind of created this pressure of you need to always be creating something for other people to consume. And that pressure to always have something new is even more intense for cosplayers trying to make money off of their work. I think the amount of cosplayers who actually can become professionals is far and few between. The nice thing is that now I do see people kind of, you know, slowly pushing back of like, you don't have to be in this rat race. You know, you can just cosplay because you want to. You don't have to always have something new. You don't have to always do the most popular thing. And even if you do, it's totally okay that someone did it first. That's not the point of all of this. And you can cosplay because you have fun with it. You don't have to turn it into a way to make money or a way to gain like a social following. We're going to take a quick break, and when we're back, we'll get into more of the tensions within fandom, as well as who's been finding success making art from what they love. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So we just heard from Yalda and Rebecca about cosplaying, which I guess I never realized how competitive it really is. And honestly, it can get a little it can get a little mean. So, I mean, what's that about? Yeah, well, it can be quite competitive, even though it evolved from hobbyists like Yalda wanting to show off their creative sides. Hmm. I mean, I guess on the flip side, it is interesting that in the same realm of conversation that you can become a professional from mm -hmm. being a fan. Right. But like Yalda said, I mean, it doesn't happen too often. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen and, and people can still kind of have that aspiration. For example, New York Times bestselling author Allie Hazelwood, she got her start in fanfic, not with the intention of making it a career. For me, it's always been about just peeling this narrative that I had in my heart about the characters and wanting to write them in these scenarios. And that got I don't know, maybe 12 people read them. And uh, I didn't care. Like, I really just felt like I needed to tell this story that I had in my head. Allie was writing fanfic within the Star Trek canon when the Star Wars movie The Last Jedi came out. And even though she hadn't been a huge Star Wars fan before, Allie jumped headfirst into the fandom. I just loved the dynamic between Rey and Kylo Ren. I was like, this is amazing. I literally started writing fan fiction, I think the day of or the day after I saw The Last Jedi, because I thought Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley were incredibly hot and uh, attractive. And Raylo was an active fandom when I joined it, unlike the Star Trek fandom, which was, you know, literally 25 of us. <laughs> ben, when we touched hands, I saw your future. Just the shape of it, but solid and clear. You will not bow before Snoke. I saw something too. 
because of what I saw, I know when the moment comes, you'll be the one to turn. You'll stand with me. Right? It was one of Allie's fanfics with the Raylo ship that captured the attention of a person who would eventually become her agent. Now Allie is a New York Times bestselling author, and her first book, The Love Hypothesis, has been optioned for a movie. I should also note here that Allie is a white woman, the kind of fan that Rebecca was saying tends to be the norm in cosplay. And, as we've heard from a few folks, it's also the norm in fanfic writing. When Allie joined the Star Wars fandom, she found it a very welcoming space, and even gained an entirely new career out of her love of the Raylo ship. But, and this is not a spoiler, because these are not new movies, when the last movie came out, Kylo Ren and Rey shared a connection. But he dies at the end of the last movie, so there's no happily ever after. And that fervent fan energy became very nasty very quickly. So the Raylos are back in the news again, and they want Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley to be a couple in real life. They've been going after the drivers and posting nasty stuff about Joanne and their baby getting taken out, hoping they'll separate. They also, they have pages here of people using the old F.U. to Disney and J.J. Abrams because how dare they have this outcome. I'm going to kill you just like you did Ben to J.J. Abrams. Okay, so people saying they want to kill J.J. I want J.J. Abrams' head on a platter. It's official. I'm going to kill J.J. Abrams. A lightsaber with the force so I can kill J.J. Abrams. Finally seen the rise of Skywalker and I'm going to kill J.J. Abrams. Die, J.J. Abrams. Okay, that just got really dark kind of in an unnecessary way. Like how it was never that deep. Like I don't understand how fandoms can almost like cannibalize itself in a way. It's like it's this is something that's supposed to be like celebrated and they want J.J. Abrams head on a plate. Yeah. A lot of them. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's just that incredible love for this ship, this couple, right? Like they saw Kylo Ren and they saw Rey and they said, you know, we see this love and they have to be together. And, and they wanted to pursue that. And so everything in the way of that became a hurdle, including John Boyega, including Adam Driver's wife, including J.J. Abrams. But it's fiction. Mm. <laughs> like, this isn't... Fiction is life. okay well then we know the Raylo fandom was massive and it sounds like it got really out of hand but I mean how does fandom get messy like this well I think it's going back to that decentralized aspect of things you know at times this ungoverned body of highly creative and passionate people can become unruly and direct their energies at people who don't even participate directly in the fandom and they also tend to go after people who simply work inside of the world of fandom. It's terrible. I definitely probably have like CPTSD as a result of all of this fandom stuff. That's Stitch, a pop culture and fandom expert who's also black and queer. And we're using Stitch's screen name because of the harassment they've gotten over the years for their articles and comments. Back in 2019, in the middle of all of that anger at J.J. Abrams over the end of The Last Jedi... John Boyega, one of the actors in the movie who plays a black stormtrooper turned good guy, also posted about it. And this set off a storm of harassment and vitriol from Raylo fans. What I don't like is the conflict between ships. I think it's the most stupid thing in the world. It's a Star Wars. It's a big universe. Someone can be a Raylo and then, you know, someone can like the fact Finn and Poe are together. 
Poe and Ray together, whoever, you know, the conflict in it is when I'm like, all right, let's all calm down. This is, this is Star Wars, not Tribal Wars. <laughs> and I watched hundreds of shippers who really liked Raylo decide that that meant that John was mocking them, that he was being a misogynist, that he was a danger to their fandom. I saw people accuse him of being rapist. And this was going on and I was documenting it and I was posting what I was documenting. At the time in end of 2019, beginning of 2020, I was a public Twitter account. The fandom and other fandoms are why I'm not uh, public anymore. Stitch has been dealing with harassment for years. In one instance, an article of theirs came out while they were at their father's funeral and the ugly comments came pouring in. And you were seeing people say, like, all kinds of just really awful stuff. People will literally say that all I do in fandom is complain. And it's like, it is literally my job to talk about issues in fandom and concerns of fans. That even if I was, like, two days into fandom, you know, if somebody new to fandom can come in and go, oh, there's a lot of racism here. Maybe there's a lot of racism there. I mean, that's not surprising because, I mean, this sounds so similar to harassment and abuse that happens in other parts of the Internet, especially, I mean, for a queer Black person like Stitch. Yeah, I mean, compared to Allie Hazelwood, who literally started a whole career off of Raylo, meanwhile, Stitch is getting all of these threats. So is there anything different about dealing with this situation in fandom communities, though? I think, unfortunately, Stitch's experience is that, you know, some people aren't that receptive to hearing criticism about racism in fandom. I've been compared to book burners, to Republicans, to cops. And it's like, wow, I can tell you've never been near one. Okay. It's just to stoke these fears that, like, if, if you take me seriously about racism in fandom that next I'm going to come for your books. It's so that people can then feel comfortable attacking and dehumanizing me and other people of color, because that's like the whole goal, to, to pretend that fandom is under attack by conservatives. They're so busy somehow successfully framing people of color who talk about racism and fandom as like the real conservatives. I don't understand how, because like you would think that people would look at the racist being racist and then the black person talking about racism and know that the racist is the problem. But no, me, I'm the problem. This kind of gaslighting makes it so hard to have real conversations about racism, which brings us to a familiar topic in the creator economy, content moderation. Here's Rebecca Williams again. I think the internet has been really important in connecting groups of people who maybe feel excluded from certain kinds of fandom. Again, I don't think that it's been completely perfect. There's been a lot of discussion, for example, about the archive of our own and some of the ways in which it continues to allow a lot of fan fiction that is considered to have kind of racist tropes in it, to have a lot of kind of problematic storylines and the archive argument has tended to be that if you don't like it then you don't read it and a lot of fans who aren't white are pushing back and saying maybe you do need to be better at some of the content moderation that's happening there maybe you know this is not a space that feels safe for everybody equally so there are still problems I think I don't think that fandom has solved every problem and is equally accessible to everybody 
AO3 is the nonprofit we talked about in our first episode. It's an archive of fanfic created and run by fans. AO3 has its problems, as Rebecca mentioned. But it was created in part to store fan works in a way that was not bound to corporate whims. Before that, companies that own fan sites like LiveJournal decided to crack down on fan works based on their own internal criteria. For example, a lot of historically queer content gets flagged as being explicit. And then in one notable case, companies decided that female presenting nipples weren't okay to show on Tumblr. And because their content moderation was bad, you ended up with weird things where pictures of fruit or dunes were getting flagged as being obscene material. E.J. Nielsen studies digital media and fan culture at the University of Massachusetts. So they got shut down without warning and people lost stuff and then they did it again. So fans migrated to different spaces, but then it's happened again in those different spaces. One of the ways that fans dealt with this was the website archive of our own, which is a bunch of fans saying, if we don't own the servers, we will never own anything. So they bought the servers and founded the Organization for Transformative Works as a nonprofit organization. And the idea is that it's this one space where people will not get kicked off because someday someone decides that it's not going to be cool because they own the servers and they have a bunch of lawyers on speed dial. It may have its own problems, but again, what it comes out of is this history of fan spaces being made unlivable, as it were, for fans. You know, of being at the mercy of decisions by corporations, you know, to ban something, to get rid of something, whatever. And again, with these systems, with software, we're all very vulnerable to the decisions of corporations because we can't opt out of engaging with them. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, fans seem to be migrating from site to site, honestly, being pushed around by corporations changing their content policies. But then when fans try to be independent and self-govern, there's a lot of really ugly behavior within these groups. Right, exactly. And like Stitch said, you know, without some sort of oversight, fans can get kind of out of control. And when sites like AO3 take a stance on this total permissiveness, then it becomes harder for fans to navigate controversial material that could be toxic or harmful. I guess it begs the question of whether or not there could be some kind of middle ground or neutral third party to engage with fandom sites. I don't know, maybe something like the UN. <laughs> Do you really want to? Are we taking it there? Is it that deep? <laughs> yeah. We're on UN level. <laughs> across the world, yes. Do you want to be in charge of that? I Yes, I submit my proposal right now. Well, Avery's in the Peace Corps, everyone, so if anyone can unite the fandoms, <laughs> you're the airbender of the <laughs> fandom. <laughs> I got my little badge <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> um, but yeah, there have been some steps including discussions moderators on fandom.com where you could submit a moderation request. And then I reached out to Francesca Coppa, who said in response to criticism, AO3 fast-tracked and launched blocking tools that give their users this ability to control the comments and also to block other users. So there is that. And if you do think that you're being harassed, you can reach out to their policy and abuse team. Oh, okay. It sounds like they're making some changes, but there's still a lot of more work to do. So what is the next episode? Where are you taking us next on this fandom journey? Well, we touched on some fans making a career from their work. We're going to get deeper into the problems around monetizing fan works and the legal issues there, and the bigger conversation around creativity and ownership. All creativity is derivative, right? You can't make 
gray without mixing black and white. It's the only way to do it. The subject matter of intellectual property is culture and we have to understand it and respect it at, to nurture it. it sounds juicy. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to do for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And make sure you rate and comment as well, because we always love to hear from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by... Avery Miles! Hey! Blake Odom, Matt Toder, and Julia Shu. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. 